Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Very pleased to be joined by Bleacher Report NBA writer Jerome Weitzman, who's authored a very interesting and insightful book about your 76ers. It's called Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. Jerome, thank you very much for doing this. First thing I want to do, and I want to do this in the beginning, and I want to do this in the end. How can somebody purchase your book? Oh, you can purchase it... uh Wherever books are sold, which I guess these days is a different kind of conversation, right? But um, you know, wherever yeah, wherever books are sold, Amazon can deliver it. Um, ebook, if you don't want to leave the house or have any deliveries, you can hear me read it to you via audiobook. Though I can't say I recommend that. Um, yeah, that would be the short answer. So we're, cur- we're as you said, we're currently in a, in a really, really sad and difficult situation right now for a lot of people. For sports fans, regardless of how intense or casual they may be. This book could possibly come in handy as a distraction, however brief that distraction may be. Um, how much do you agree with that? Um, yes, I agree with that. I can tell you, <laughs> excuse me, I know uh, myself, myself mentally, I'm uh, in distraction mode. I'm kind of on, uh, you know, I, I'm having trouble reading the, uh, I keep up with the news, having trouble reading the um, human interest, or that's the wrong term, but you know, there are more stories about people dying and things like that. Um, yeah, I'm certainly looking for distraction, so... I'd like to think that this book uh, could provide that. I, I hope so. Well, I can I can vouch personally and recommend personally that that if you're looking for something to do while you're at home, this book is certainly something that you should you should pick up and check out because it is really interesting and it goes back not to talk about the book. It really you really dive into many different intricate details about the 76ers, not just starting in the Sam Hinkie era in the spring of 2013, but you really go all the way back, all the way to the Allen Iverson era. And you talk about that, and, 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 and the, the title of that chapter is called The Purgatory, because really that part sets up the 76ers for what eventually became the Sam Hinkie era. Their, you know, their mediocrity after that great 01 season really kind of just in a lot of fans' minds and I guess eventually in the new ownership minds and Josh Harris, it really got, got, got them into this mindset that they kind of had to do really 
extensive rebuild. Now, it, the process really exploded, as I said, in the spring of 13, when, when Hinky jumped on board. When did you get the idea to write this book? Um, I, I, uh, I came in late, right? I, I had the idea I was covering I covered the NBA for Bleacher Report. I'm a national writer. I don't say that to pat myself on the back. I say that to, say, to point out that my job is then to find – I live in New York, but my job is to find stories that a national audience would find interesting. Um, in New York with the Knicks and the Nets, that's not really possible, or that wasn't possible. So I would start going down to Philly a little bit when they were sort of on the rise. Um, this was the 2017-2018 season. And then I covered them during that playoff run. And one day on the train, I don't remember if it was after the playoffs or before or in the middle, um, I kind of had the idea of thinking, oh, I'm, there's a lot of quote-unquote stuff here. I feel like there's a, uh, I feel like there could be a book. And from there, I was in there spring. In July, I had a book deal for July of uh, 2018, I guess it was. But yeah, um, so I kind of came in late on this. You really gave great background on all the different characters and figures of this process and of this rebuild, most notably Sam Hinkie. Uh And you also go into a lot of different other people, too, like Scott O'Neill, Nerlens Noel, MCW, Jolly Okafor. You talked about the Colangelos, Brett, Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, Joel Embiid, Jimmy Butler. You really, not, not just going through the history of this rebuild, but you really go into the background of every single important person, regardless of how important they may or may not be in this process. Obviously, the most important one is Sam Hinkie because he's the guy that really developed this whole idea, this whole plan, this whole vision, as you put it in your in your book. From your research, and you did a lot of research, because I can see it in your bibliography, I could see it in your acknowledgments, from your research on Hinkie, what did you learn most about Hinkie after researching and writing this book? Um, the thing I learned most, a lot of the things you'd expect about him, like a lot of the cliches are true. Um, I guess the most revealing thing is, and I didn't know this, is that his brother, um, his brother killed himself. Sam, it's, it's very sad, I mean, obviously, right, no doubt. But Sam was about um, 10, his brother was 17, his brother killed himself. Um, and that had an impact on Sam. I never got to speak to Hickey about it. I don't know what, how profound the impact was. I mean, though, like, again, duh, obviously that impacts you. Um, and one thing I found interesting was that night he told a story once on a random podcast, um, a non-sports podcast, about how he found um, solace playing basketball, shooting hoops with a friend and his friend's dad that night. Um, and I thought that was interesting that despite all the quote-unquote analytical, cold-type thinking, he's still somebody who believed in sports, you know, in the cliches and the magic and all that stuff. Um, and he loved sports. It wasn't just about um it wasn't just about being like, you know, the hyper-efficient analytical guy. It was more than, um, I, I would, I don't think, I don't, I've never covered baseball. I don't think he's completely analogous to, um, with the Jeff Lindhouse, the Astros guy. Like, we're basically just running a McKinsey operation, right? Out of, uh, in turning the Astros baseball front office into that. I don't think that was Hinky. He had these things, but he, he truly believed in sports. And I think that's one of the interesting things. I guess so to sum it up, like, he's not somebody you can put in the box, right? He's, this Silicon Valley type guy, they grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. Um, there's a lot of, you know, he's this, but he's also this. Um, so that's like, you know, he, he is literally unique. Like he's literally one of a kind. Things that really made him unique, especially when he became uh, the president of basketball operations for the 76ers, was that he, he really, he didn't alienate everybody, but he acted in a way, and he, he acted in a way that like, he he came off as 
the smartest guy in the room, and he knew that he came off as the smartest guy in the room. And even if he was around somebody who had years and years of experience and success, like Rod Thorne, as you mentioned in your book, it, it didn't it seemed like it didn't matter to him. Why do you think Hinky was that way? I think he thought that in the end the work would the work would be what would, what would matter, right? That, not in an egotistical way, but like he thought he was doing things correctly, and he thought that in the end that would speak for itself, and people would come to his side. Um, that'd be kind of a short answer, right? It just I think it was a blind spot. I think he, I don't think he read the um, read the room correctly in terms of how political and how small world the NBA is. Um, so that's more of like stuff with agents and league office and things like that, not necessarily Rod Thorne, but. Um, yeah, I think that was it, right? He kind of believed that, you know, even people disagreed. Like, they all wanted the same thing. He just knew how to give it to everyone and, uh, in a way that maybe they didn't. And he thought that that would speak for itself at the end. So there's always, Jerome, there's always this what-if element with Sam Hinkie, especially with the strong Hinkie supporters, the rights to Ricky Sanchez, the rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, Spike and Mike. There's always that strong what-if. What if Sam Hinkie stayed with the 76ers, what if it stayed his show? What if they didn't bring in any outside voice, any Colangelo? What if it? What if he was still the president of basketball operations to this day? What do you think the 76ers would be like if Sam Hinkie was still in charge? Um, it'd be incredibly different, right? I don't think when Colangelo came in, aside the false trade, which that's not one I don't think Hinkie would have made because he just the whole idea was. You know, I'm not draft the crapshoot. I'm not going to give. I need as many swings in the play as possible. So, like, he, I doubt he would have traded two lottery picks for one, right? I just want to get everything he was thinking, everything he believed. Um, the biggest difference, though, is the Colangelo's came in and this it had this. Um, they accelerated the timeline. They seemed to have this rush to be a contender um, to try to get into championship mode. And I mean, you know, they've come close, right? You can say you can't. I mean, I guess you could say they're wrong, but it's not like they were crazy. Um, I think Hinky he would have gone much slower, um, but more methodical in terms of the building around him and indeed. And I think that would be the biggest difference. If if he if he wasn't so distant with the media and wasn't so distant with his with the people that that doubted him and the people that did not like him, his detractors. If he wasn't so distant from them, and he was a little more open, shared his ideas a little bit more. To, you know, not to the extent where he revealed state secrets, but was a little bit more open, do you think that the NBA and Scott O'Neill and maybe other parts of the 76ers would have kind of shoved him out the door gradually as they did? Or do you think that they would have been a little bit more patient if he was a little bit more open and a little bit more of a people person with that small NBA world that you spoke of? Um, yes and no. How about that, right? How's that for a good answer? I think it could have helped, and I think like there was conversations about being a little more open with the media and stuff, but it was not. I also think the media part gets overblown a little bit. I don't think that was the biggest thing. Um, so, yeah, it would have helped. And, like, Sam, he would talk to reporters off the record, or background even sometimes a lot, especially local reporters and even some national ones. Um, he wouldn't give a lot of on-the-record quotes, which seems strange. Though, again, maybe it's just because I live in New York and, like, you know, the Knicks, like they just hire a president of basketball operations who doesn't have a press conference, right? It just That's becoming more and more common. Maybe back then it wasn't, you know, five years before, whatever it's eight years now. Um, these things have changed. Um, it's more and more common now for these president GMs to just, you know, not talk to the media at all. Sam Presti rarely talks to the media. Um, I think the biggest thing was being... So, yeah, that that becomes like a symbol for the whole thing for Sam's personality. I think the bigger issue was 
his relationship with agents, with other teams trying to kill, you know, trying to kill them in every trade. The agents, the agents was a big one. Um, not necessarily it was with people in his business office, which again was the business side of things, which again might not be his fault because I mean he that's more of an ownership thing. Like they're supposed to get people on board. You know, Sam came in and was carrying out a vision. Like it wasn't like he took an abrupt right turn, right? It was very clear from the beginning what the plan was going to be. Um, but this is more of the general communication and openness, and I guess willingness to hear or to make other people feel like they were heard. That might be a better way to put it, right? No, I, and I hear you on that. And, and I guess maybe another thing that ultimately led to Hinky no longer being with the 76ers, the thing that appeared to really, the straw that, break, that broke the candle's back was all of the Jaleel Okafor incidents, yeah. off-the-court incidents, and how they be, that became just a domino effect where they said enough. Do you get that sense too that the Jaleel Okafor off-court incidents is what really led to some the Colangelo aspect being brought into the picture here? Yeah, that's I mean that's how I, that's how my reporting show I mean that's what that's how I'm in the book right. You have all this other stuff going on and then Okafor, you know he's having some he's drinking off the court and people know and, and you know these are the kind of things that we might not know but like the team knows and the um, the league office knows. You know these secrets again small world right things get passed around things. Get, you know, shit, everyone's kind of aware of what situations are. Um, and then TMZ gets in, has that video of him stumbling drunk around Boston, and that makes on TMZ, I think that was the night before Thanksgiving, or right the Wednesday of Thanksgiving. Um, and the league office is serious, and they call, and you know, I have a, I have a scene in the book where the, this vice president of security calls the Sixers and says, you know, the commissioner wants to know why one of the players is on TV on TMZ, and no one from the team has reached out. And from there... You know, that was it when then, based my understanding, is Josh Harris then called the league, said, okay, I need some help. Who do you, who do you have? Um, and I think this gets misstated a lot. Like people say, did Adam Silver force out? And it's not, you know, these people are in communication a lot, right? It's not like Josh Harris and Adam Silver don't talk for 10 months and one day Adam Silver says, get me Josh Harris on the phone, get him and says, Sam has to be fired, right? That's, like, that's not how it goes. It's kind of these gradual, slow conversations. And the Okafor one was where I guess that was pushed um, Harris to that side of things that we need to make changes here. Um, so that's what he called the league. He brought in some lawyers to run some depositions of his own staff to kind of see what was going out, what was going on. Um, so that would be the, uh, yes, I, I would agree with you. You use the cliche, right? The cliche, which I usually hate, but it actually works in the situation. The straw that broke the camel's back, right? That was it. There, there were a lot of things that, that led up to, to Hinky's eventual ouster, and, and that was definitely the, that, that seemed like to be the one that really pushed it over the edge there. Uh, moving on to Brett Brown, because he's definitely, he's probably, I, I want to say, the, the at third or fourth most important of, of everybody in this whole thing, because he, he's, he's been here since Hinky's been, in fact, he's been here longer at this point. The fate of Brett Brown has been a huge topic this season before everything paused because of this crisis. What do you think people are going to learn from this book about Brett, and how may their opinion of him be changed or be enhanced? Ooh, good question. Um, yeah, Brett's a tough one to explain, right, like in, in three sentences. Um, right, I do think – I'll pat myself on the back again. How about that? I do think I give a – fuller image of Brett Brown than maybe we've seen a lot, right? Like, there's more to him than just the rah-rah, the lucky guy who a lot of people, um, who a lot of people, you know, you kind of see that and think that's what he is in the media. He's open with the media, gives you long-winded answers. Um, Brett's got a temper, can curse a little bit, which is fine. 
Um, the biggest thing, although I think with Brett Brown, and it's it's you know becomes then a conversation of is it his fault? Is it all fair? But that's separate one. Just there there what there has been I think a failure to create a culture of accountability among the players. Um, not all his fault, right? He was kind of left on island at first, but that's him. Thank you or anyone else helping him. Um, he's got that some tough players in the situation for instance of that stuff. Guys like Joel Embiid, who, you know, again, there might be other reasons why they act up um, the way they do. Um, so, but that's kind of the biggest takeaway, and that's kind of one of the, I think, and that's kind of one of the um, the narratives that goes through the book, is that, you know, starting in Nolan's Noel and then Embiid and Okafor and things like that. Um, the other part is that, but the other part is that, man, he's been dealt a tough hand in terms of the stuff he's had to deal with, right, in terms of Hinky and Colangelo and uh, Bernadette and Markel Fultz and these stuff and Jimmy Butler and just, you know, no head coach has to deal with as much. And I, I do think, despite the criticism I just want to give, um, I think he's actually handled it pretty well. Um, and I don't know if a lot of head coaches would have been able to stay or last this long. It, it's remarkable how much Brett has, has dealt with in his and now his his seventh year with the 76ers. I mean, he's ba- he's basically he's basically held several different roles, literally and figuratively. He has spoken on matters that he probably shouldn't have to speak on. Uh, he has been briefly the interim president of basketball ops because they've gone through so ma- so many of them. And then on top of that, he's had to deal with some very high profile players that you know c- could understandably so because of their talents have a certain ego to them and that's not easy as well so he has certainly had a lot to deal with and then the fans on top of that because there's been his supporters and there's been people who don't think that he's an NBA championship caliber head coach so he has definitely dealt with a lot it'll be interesting your own to see how everything pans out with Brett when or if this season resumes or doesn't resume. Moving on to Josh Harris, and you and you really highlight this well from the time that you speak about him first and then near the end of the book. He changes in the way that he approaches owning this team. How so? How has Josh Harris changed since he bought the Sixers in 2011? Yeah, I mean, basically I'll sum it up, right? When he buys the team in his introductory press conference, he um, refers to it as, you know, this is a really good uh, business opportunity. And, you know, speaking of it, basically, you know, the strip, buying a distressed asset and turn it around very much in the private equity mold, um, which is where he comes from. Um, now, he taught you look at Josh Harris now, and he's very clearly somebody who enjoys owning a basketball team and thinks of himself as some sort of basketball knower, right? And, you know, sort of a GM type. Um, and I think that, that's one of the more interesting, or that was one of the more interesting um arcs for me to trace as I was kind of going over and looking over these things. And then uh, let's move on to some of the players uh, your own. So, Joel and Ben, why do you think they've had, they've been really good for their careers, as long as they've been healthy? Um, why have they struggled in their particular areas, do you think, Joel staying in shape, and Ben, his unwillingness to shoot? Why do you think that's been such an such an issue with them? Oh, a million dollar question, man. I, <laughs> ben shooting one of me, I honestly don't know. I, I, my, my amateur psychology would be, and this, you know, this is what some people think is that, you know, it's like, you know, it became a, it's become a game of chicken, right? Um, you know, everyone says you can't do it. Everyone tells you you have to do something, you have to do something. At some point, you're going to say, I don't want to do it, right? I don't need to anyway. And he's right, right? He's done his life. Um, he's made, he's carved out a pretty good life for himself without, without shooting the basketball, right? All-Stars, Superstar, Max Contract, getting Kardashians, all that stuff. Um, so who am I to say uh, you need to shoot? I do think it becomes down to, like, what you want, right? Do you want to be, you know, like a top-five player at MVP? Or do you happy with where you are? Um, 
that's you know again far be it for me precise, I guess. Um, the Embiid thing, the health thing, yeah, he doesn't again. It's just a desire thing. Again, I don't really know if people have tried. You know, I like this is where you know. So I criticize Brent a little bit, but at some point it's also not all on him. It's on the players too to so make these choices for themselves. And sometimes it's like the thing that separates great players from like truly transcendent. Right? There's a different level there in terms of how we judge them, how they go down in history. Um, being great, that's fine. That's fine. You can be a great player, and that's all good. Um, if you want to go to that next level, um, these are the decisions or the choices you have to make. And so far, neither of those guys have um, been willing to do so. Jimmy Butler is is probably the third best, arguably the third best player the 76ers have had in the last decade or so with Joel and Ben. His story is is interesting on on many different fronts, and one that you shed light on that I I didn't hear before reading your book. You know, Brian Colangelo, he's defined by that infamous Twitter scandal. But after he's done being involved with the 76ers, he still helps them lure Jimmy Butler to Philadelphia. What does that say about Colangelo, and how exactly did he do that? Yes, I found that fascinating. Right, basically, Brian Colangelo is um, really good friends with Jimmy Butler's agent um, from Toronto. Jimmy Butler's agent lives in Toronto. Um, so I mean, Bernie Lee and Brian Colangelo uh, work in Toronto, so they became close there. Um, and after Bernard Gate, Jimmy Butler's agent's wife throws him a surprise, I believe it was a 40th birthday party. And uh, Colangelo's at dinner, and Jimmy Butler flies in. And, you know, the dinner and drinks are flowing and at one point. And this was, uh, this was after, this was right before the trading camp, the, um, the off-season, preseason when Butler blew things up in Minnesota. But he already knew he wanted out. Um, at one point, he turns to Ray Colangelo and says, tell me about Philly. And Colangelo says, that's the place you should go. You go there, you're going to win. Um, there's a couple other interactions too, but I just found that fascinating that Colangelo is still pitching, and I don't know. I mean, I would guess again, amateur psychology, but I'm guessing the the reason is Colangelo. We we've learned, and I learned, and you know, it's, it's become it became very obvious that he's somebody who's very aware of his legacy and cares what other people think. And I'm guessing he thought that okay, I'm not there, but if this team can win, like that will reflect well upon me. You know, that'll look good for me. I think I'll go down in history as part of this championship team, uh, which I find fascinating. I got three more for your your own. The first one is, why didn't Jimmy and Brett work out? Um, well, I mean, so as much as I enjoy Jimmy, I think it's fair to say, like, he is not easy to coach, right? Is that fair to say? Um, <laughs> a couple things, but and, and that's one. So it's not all on Brett. Brett, though, is um, non-confrontational. Jimmy is obviously confrontational. Um, just different personalities. It just wasn't a good mesh, you know what I mean? And, and Jimmy, yeah, I mean, that'd be the short answer, I would say, right? Jimmy's confrontational, but it's non-confrontational. Jimmy's tough, but has never had to deal with a guy like that and didn't really want to um, and didn't know how. Um, that would be the, I mean, now that's, you know, if I can go, we can hypothesize that, you know, we've heard. And Jimmy, a lot of this, this was after the book came out, but up in the J.J. Reddick, on the J.J. Reddick podcast, where right, he talked about some of this stuff. Um, Page 251 stood out to me you got two paragraphs on page 251. It's after the Sixers lost to the Raptors in Game 7. The chapter is called The Results. And the gist of these two paragraphs is, after all the good, the bad, and the ugly that happened over the six years since Hinky took over, since Hinky left, since Joel started playing, since Ben came in, since, you know, all those misses that Hinky had and that Colangelo had came and gone and all this other stuff and all these other problems and all this controversy, that in the end, Hinky's vision, to a degree, came true. And when you get done reading this book, you get the feeling that the future of the 76ers 
is extraordinary bright, which is a very strong and, and valid argument. They just got Josh Richardson in the trade with Jimmy Butler. Josh is on a team-friendly deal. He's young. He's a good defensive player. Just came off a 16-point-per-game season. Per, um, Al Horford's been an all-star. Tobias Harris is on a max deal. You got the young stars. You got the guys in free agency. This is what Hinky envisioned. But then the book ends, and then you realize that this season has gone, you know, I guess three-fourths through the 2019-20 season. And it's been a very up-and-down season when you think about it. Al Horford hasn't worked out. Uh, Joel's injured again. Ben's still not shooting. Tobias, some people argue that he's been overpaid. Um, Jimmy, some people argue if Jimmy were still here, maybe maybe Joel, you know, wouldn't be so up and down in terms of what appears to be his mood. Um, so when you think about it, how do you feel about Hinky's vision now, seeing the way that this season has gone after your book is done? Um, you know, I definitely you can definitely argue the book was a little forgiving at the end, right? Yeah, have to put a tidy bow on it. Um, no, but again, so the, so a couple of things. One, it's not that's not on Hinky, right? So he yeah, he was certainly bears some responsibility for his asking, but you know that being said, if you start a project and yanked off of it halfway through and seven other people, you know, which might actually be the number for actually counting six people who made decisions, right? Um, seven other people are complete the project or take it over, like they're fair to judge you, you know, on that complete product, right? So that's one. Um, two is I still, despite the bumpiness this year, and this year has been a mess, right? I think it's fair to say that, or was, I don't know, we're talking present or past tense in this season. I don't know, probably past at this point, right? Um, this season was a mess. Um, yeah, that being said, they, they still matter. They were still in contention. They're still a team that we cared about. They still have two superstars, right? So that's kind of the whole thing. But despite it all, they have these two guys, and as long as they have those two guys, they are ahead of the get curve, and they have a shot at championship contention. Um, and that's kind of the whole game there. So that's how I would look at it. Gotcha. And I got one more for you. Since, um, you know, since you're very tied into the NBA and you speak to a lot of people, there, it's really, at this point, very much up in the air for not only the NBA, but for professional sports as well. We don't know with this crisis when it's going to be safe enough to play again. We don't know if fans are going to be allowed in the venues. Um, it, you know, it's got to be safe for everything to come back. We really don't know. You're hearing all these different rumors and scenarios, maybe one site, maybe this or that. What do you think is going to happen for this NBA season? Um, I, I I'd be shocked if we get anything, any games again. Um, I just would. Just not even. And I think the NBA is starting to catch on, or you know, not catch on. They they were new. They were, they were hopeful, but not optimistic. You know, hopeful. But I just, it, it's not the decision about theirs, right? It's coming above them. Um, and I just, I I just, you know, I live in New York City, so maybe I'm a little um, jaded because of life here right now. But that also, I feel like that's going to be life for the country for a little bit, and just seeing all the reports and timelines and things like that. I just. I just don't see it. Um, here's a simple example, right? To do it, you have to test. You have to have mass tests. Um, you know, to like bring players. Even if you do one of these silly biodome things where you bring everyone into one place, um, that requires testing everyone and constantly testing to make sure no there are no issues. And to do that, you have to have enough tests. Like, you have to have enough tests where we have extras where we can test NBA players to make sure that's cool that they play a game, right? So I just, uh, to be honest, I don't know. I'd be I'd almost be more worried about the 2021 season, hoping that we can get that started on time. 
Well, there's definitely a lot of question marks that have to be answered over the coming months or so about this NBA season. You're right about that. Again, one more time, Jerome, how can people purchase this book? Yeah, it's available. If you look at my Twitter feed, you can see the links there, but it's really available where, you know, wherever books are sold. So, yeah, ebook is available, Amazon, Kindle, wherever, ebook.com. I think that's a thing, right? Um, you know, I always say these, like, if you have a local bookstore that you can look up if they are, um, maybe they're delivering or figure out a way to support them, that's great small businesses now. But yeah, where otherwise you can go to basic Amazon delivery, ebook, audiobook, all that good stuff. I highly recommend it. It's a very informative, it's a very interesting book. If you're a Sixers fan, you definitely want to read this book. It teaches you things, it tells you things that you didn't know before about the, the Hinky process, Sam Hinky and the 76ers rebuild. Yaron, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's Yaron Weitzman, NBA writer from Bleacher Report. Very interesting Sixers book you should check out, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. Yaron, thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.